0: This episode of the Supply Chain Brain podcast is supported by the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Be sure and stick around after the discussion for a look at the port's expansion initiatives and its vision for the future. But now, on to the podcast. Can US East Coast ports handle the huge new container ships that are coming to their berths? Hi everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain podcast. We can argue about whether the mega-container ships that have been launched in recent years make economic sense for shipping lines. But their potential impact on ports can't be denied. They require deeper water, longer berths, taller cranes, bigger container yards, and improved connections to trucks and trains. Any major port that wants to remain competitive will have to spend billions on projects of that kind. But the big ships also present an opportunity for new business, especially for ports on the U.S. East Coast. They stand to benefit from the recent widening of the Panama Canal, which allows U.S.-bound ships from Asia to bypass the West Coast, where they would normally unload. Today I'm speaking with Andy Saparito, Deputy Director of the Port Department of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, and Captain Eric Weberg, Marketing Manager with McAllister Towing and Transportation Company. They'll tell us about the opportunities and challenges that East Coast ports face as they gear up to compete for the business of global container lines. So here is my conversation with Andy Saporito and Eric Weberg. Andy Saporito, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bob, and Eric Weberg. Welcome as well. Thank you, Bob. Andy, I want to ask you first: just how big are the so-called big ships, the mega container ships that are coming online now, and what impact, generally, are they having on container ports?
1: Well, well Bob, the largest ships that we have today are just a little over ten thousand TEUs. You know, it has a, a big impact on us, probably because over the last, uh, I would say, ten years or or so. The ship size has gone from four to 6,000 TUs to what I just mentioned is 10,000 TUs. So the capacity in the yard, the amount of equipment, even the, the hours it takes to work these vessels uh, keeps on increasing, which uh, puts stress and strain on the whole uh, network.
0: And Eric, I assume that bigger ships means bigger and more powerful tugs, correct?
1: That is correct.
2: And it, it does mean fewer jobs. So we have to uh, learn to adapt, Bob.
0: On that subject, we've seen a steep decline in the actual number of port calls, specifically at New York, New Jersey, but also other ports as well. A lot more smaller ships used to call. Now there's fewer, and with consolidation in the industry, that also creates some challenges in terms of consolidating down to fewer, larger terminals. Is that correct, Andy?
1: I wouldn't say it's fewer, larger. Our terminals, we still have the same number of terminals it's just increasing the footprint of those terminals, uh, which we actually started to do back in the late 90s, early 2000. And we still see terminals increasing their footprints so that they can handle the ships.
0: So what are some of the steps that you see ports taking in order to accommodate this incoming flow of so-called mega container ships?
1: The biggest issue for, for a lot of the ports is having adequate water uh, so that the ships can can reach the ports. If you look back 10 years ago, uh, 40 what depth was something that was adequate for a lot of ports up and down the coast. Uh, what they're finding is you need somewhere between 45 and 50 feet in order to handle the ships. And that's really not something that you do overnight. You have to work with the government and the Army Corps of Engineers, and you, you have to get all the funding and, and approvals before you can even uh, start the project. So it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of legwork ports have to do.
0: Or well, you might be putting it mildly in historical terms because, as I recall, that when ports were even trying to get down to 40 or maybe 45 feet, they had dredging projects that took a decade or more to get permitted. Is it still that bad?
1: It takes a long while, and, you know, funding is tight, so uh, ports are competing. We were actually in the process of working on our 45-foot project uh, when everybody realized that we really need 50 feet. So while we were moving forward 45, we actually got reauthorized to 50, and we just completed that part of the project uh, this summer.
0: So you did manage to get through those regulatory hoops, <laughs> despite the uh, difficulties of that. I want to talk about some of the accompanying infrastructure. First of all, the berths themselves, I assume, have to be longer. The acreage of the terminal has to be bigger. And here on the West Coast, we've seen a switch in some ports from wheel to stacked containers in order to get more in the yard. Is the same thing happening on the East
1: Coast? Yes, and it's it's again it's something that's been going on since the late nineties where terminals have converted from wheel to uh, stacked operations. Berths you right have to be lengthened and also deepened. And and that takes a a lot of effort to, to get that done. Because while you're deepening the berth you also need to strengthen the berth because the cranes that you're replacing your, your older equipment with are much heavier and they need much more support.
0: But in the age of stack trains and unit trains, the work that needs to be done extends well beyond the waterfront, does it not? What else has to be done in terms of either on-dock or near-dock or remote container transfer facilities and access for trucks going back and forth, whether drayage trucks or long-haul trucks? There's a lot has to go on inland, too. What are some of the uh, concerns there?
1: Well, you you hit it right on the, the head. The infrastructure is important. And, and depending on the type of port you, you operate, uh, it varies where you need to make that investment. But everybody needs adequate intermodal service and facilities. The, the closer to the port, and the closer to the dock, the better. Uh, because you don't want to be handling the containers too many times before you, you get it out of the port. You also need the roadway infrastructure to, to handle the containers. In, in our port, for instance, 85% of the uh, the containers move via truck. We've been undergoing a major uh, expansion of our roadway so we could handle the, the, the trucks. And, and even with the intermodal facilities, you don't not only need to build the, uh, the tracks for loading the, and unloading the trains, but you need adequate storage for all the, the trains that uh, you, you're storing to bring on the terminal to load and unload. So there's a lot of thought and planning has to take place.
0: Will that eighty five percent figure remain steady going forward, or do you see the opportunity to increase the share of intermodal or rail traffic to in and out of the port?
1: Uh, we are hoping to increase that we 're really eyeing discretionary cargo, which is a cargo that was traditionally can move anywhere along the coast, but as a as a first port of call we 're going to be aggressively and have been aggressively uh, trying to attract that cargo here. Um, the other thing we 've been looking at is the, the viability of barging containers out of the port just to take the the stress off the roadways of the infrastructure.
0: Eric, tell me a little bit more about what the modern-day tug needs to look like these days. We talked about it obviously has to be more powerful, that's for sure, but technologically and just bells and whistles, so to speak, are you bringing on new tugs now and how different are they from the old models?
2: Sure. Good question, Bob. We have... um Uh, Three tugs, which are being built now, we call them the uh, Captain Brian A. McAllister class. They're 100 uh, times 40 feet and almost 7,000 horsepower. They're 6,770. They have PP1, which is one of the, the top firefighting capability. When we put out a marina fire in our Chesapeake Bay operations, they actually complained because we knocked all the buildings down. (laughs) <laughs> so they were extremely powerful you know, uh, firefighting capability. And then we have uh, Tier 4 compliant engines, which there's a kind of an irony there because they have acidic fuel, which dissolves the pistons. I'm not an engineer, but it, basically the carbon footprint is actually a bit higher uh, despite having an eco-friendly engine. So you know, we're trying to balance a lot of things. But the, the net result is it has a um, stronger bollard pull, which means the tug can pull more ship from one platform and can arrest the movement of a ship uh, better. It's basically a stronger unit is what it comes down to.
0: How many of them do you have to put up against the biggest ships? Do you need more than one tug? Uh,
2: Well, we've adapted these from the West Coast to the East Coast requirement. When the largest ships, like I think the 18,000 TEU vessel called in Oakland, it required, we looked at the photos, we studied them, uh, and they required five tugs. So we're anticipating at least three of our best tugs and maybe more, maybe four or five, depending on. I don't think we'll have 18,000 TEU vessels in New York anytime soon, but we're ready. They're not inexpensive. It's a capital investment that we take the risk, assume the risk entirely on our own. And we think it's a good investment in the future.
0: Even a 10,000 TEU ship has the potential for offloading a tremendous number of containers into the yard at a time. So, Andy, how do you see ports working today in order to avoid bottlenecks and congestion when one of these giants comes to call?
1: What we're seeing is more labor being put on staff in the ports. Terminals are acquiring additional equipment. And they are improving their their gate systems so that they can handle the amount of trucks that that will be uh, coming in the future as uh, expeditiously as they possibly can. Um, Another thing they've been looking at is appointment systems so that everybody doesn't arrive all at the same time. And you can spread the the work out over the day and actually lay out your yard so that you can accommodate the, the trucker when he comes in and you're not picking through numerous boxes to deliver one.
0: Can you increase your gate hours?
1: Well, that's another thing uh, we're talking with our terminals about. I guess volume increases. That will be something that that will be coming.
0: Now, we have talked a little bit about infrastructure and the like, some of which is within your power to influence, some of which is not. Obviously, I'm sure you guys know that we have a nationwide infrastructure crisis here. We have a lot of crumbling infrastructure, bridges, highways, roads, and, and and ports as well. Against the backdrop of the difficulty of financing new infrastructure projects right now, where does that leave ports, some of which is, again, out of their control and yet does affect their ability to be competitive? So where do you guys stand on that and how can you address the issue of infrastructure on a nationwide basis as it relates directly to port operations?
1: Well, one of the things that we do here, and I'm sure other regions do, is, I mean, you have to work as a region, you have to work with your partners. We work with New Jersey DOT, we work with the local highway authorities, uh, we work with the regional planners to talk about what the upcoming impacts would be of additional traffic and, and wear and tear on the roadway systems. So uh, there's, a, there's a constant dialogue so that as a community, everybody's working together. And also fighting for funding. There's a lot of grants out there and other things uh, that you can leverage to to help you improve things.
0: Well, that's the big question, isn't it? Paying for all of this. Where is the money coming from these days and how does that differ from before in terms of ports being able to make the necessary infrastructure improvements?
1: Most states and entities, you know, they're looking to D.C. for grants, as I said. As a port authority, we're making the investment on the Bayonne Bridge to raise it so that actually the roadway uh, is raised and ships can get under it. Everybody's contributing.
0: What about the Panama Canal? It has expanded. Finally, the new set of locks is open, which encourages ships and shippers to move stuff, all water from Asia through the canal and then up to the East Coast. Seems like that would be a good deal for East Coast ports. Is it too early to tell whether there's a difference there? or Do you see one or see one coming?
1: We've received the first ships that have used the new locks. As I mentioned previously, the, the largest ship we've had is just a little over 10,000 TEUs. Really, what everybody's waiting for is the completion of the Bayonne Bridge, and, and we'll be seeing much larger ships, probably uh, in the region of about 14,000 TEUs, is, is what we're being told by the industry. Once the Bayonne Bridge is completed, the, the lines will probably put these ships in service, and they'll be running up and down the coast. So uh, everybody's waiting for the bridge, which uh, by the end of 2017 will be complete it and you'll have the clearance and then we'll really start going.
0: But you really do think, do you, that the expanded Panama Canal is an opportunity for East Coast ports generally? Yes. It would take a certain amount of business away from the West Coast. We also saw a shift in business away from the West Coast during the labor problems that plagued West Coast ports over the last several years as they attempted to negotiate a new contract. A lot of that stuff began to come to the East Coast, I believe. Did you see a permanent shift in that flow? Or did it just all go back to business as usual when the West Coast came back up to full speed?
1: Actually, uh, we've been pleasantly surprised by uh, market share when which stayed. It has kind of uh come down a little bit over the last 3 months, but I would say over the first 6 months of 2016, our volumes have pretty much held uh, where we were.
0: Does that suggest that shippers are doing a better job of spreading their business around, they don't want to put all their eggs in one basket necessarily in case something goes wrong at one in one port range? Does it look like they got a little smarter about that?
1: Definitely. And I think that's helped us. It's helped other ports, and it's also taught us a little bit as to what we need to be prepared for uh, when these larger ships come.
0: I want to ask you both about the environmental issues that accompany any Uh, infrastructure improvements at ports or, for that matter, anywhere related to the movement of freight. Eric, I want to start with you. You did allude to the fact that the new generation of tugs, you said, are slightly higher in terms of emissions, and I'm wondering how you deal with that, or is there a way you can offset that? What are some of the emissions issues that you face with the new technologies that you're dealing with?
2: Sure, Bob, uh, I should qualify it by saying i 'm a deck officer, not an engineer, but suffice to say uh, the consumption of uh, tugs regarding fuel goes up with the Tier four emission standard. We have more sophisticated engines. Uh, they have, uh, as I mentioned, acidic fuel which dissolves the pistons, they're using uh, urea, and there's an afterburn effect, which does uh, increase, uh, reduces uh, the fuel efficiency, so that raises the um, output of emissions, basically, while using lower emission fuel. So, lower emission fuel, but more of it, and it's, they pretty much offset each other. So, uh, we're the ones who are burdened with the cost and technological work of emplacing the new engines. We just follow uh, the regulations, and sometimes they have a, a A beneficial net effect on the environment, and sometimes they don't. But our job is essentially to do what we're told.
0: Are the regs getting tougher?
2: In general, uh, I would say yes, uh, although it's not my field of expertise. I'd say that as we learn more, we're more comprehensively regulated.
0: Well, Andy, you know on the port side that uh, ports and especially uh, container ships have come under a lot more scrutiny recently with regard to the issue of emissions, the use of so-called cold ironing, ships being required to switch to shore power when they come into shore in order to reduce the emissions from the ships themselves and other aspects of that. So what's going on as you see it on the port side in terms of the need to balance new projects and more more business going through your port with the need to control and improve the environment air quality and the like
1: one of the things that we developed uh, in New York is a clean air strategy and we started this many years ago because we were watching what was going on on the west coast and, and basically, what we've done is we work with our partners and we've looked at the mobile sources of uh, equipment and the facilities and, and how to reduce the impacts on the health as you grow. Also, looking to reduce greenhouse gases and finding ways to uh, enhance the, the equipment. And when I talk about equipment, it's rail, it's the vessels, and in the, in the trucks. So, one of the things we've done is we've, we've helped the railroads retrofit their locomotives uh, to make them a lot cleaner. We've also had truck replacement programs for uh, the the local trucking industry to to make them cleaner. And uh, we've also uh, implemented a a slow steaming program with our vessel operators. Uh, where We offer them an incentive to sail a lot slower coming in, which uh, in effect reduces emissions.
0: I want to ask you both the same question, and that is given the fact that you're out to remain competitive in a very competitive environment and you're out to handle what is sure to be a surge in business in the years ahead, what do you consider to be your biggest challenge? Eric, could you tell me, could you start with that?
2: Sure thing. It's the same challenge that we've faced for 150 years, is that as the ships grow, they become more efficient, and they bring more cargo volumes to the port, but they do so on fewer hulls. And uh, you know World War II, which is obviously a peak uh, in, in the last century, in the '40s, you know 30,000 ships a year in New York and New Jersey, in the '50s, 15,000, and uh, it dropped to half. In the 70s, that went down to 8,000, and now we're at below 5,000 ship arrivals a year in this particular port. So what that means is we've got to be just as efficient and anticipate uh, change um, just as much as we ever have, and it means we're putting more powerful uh, and essentially more expensive equipment up against uh, these ships, sometimes more tugs uh, to compensate for the less, uh, fewer arrivals. But that's the changing environment that we face. Fewer vessels in the same port carrying greater uh, number of containers we're also very cognizant Whereas Andy might look at uh, at the ports uh, and, and developments in, in volumes at different ports, our concern is we watch the liner companies themselves. And when a company like Hanjin goes insolvent, we're put in a very vulnerable position. We've got to ask a cash up front uh, before talking ships. And so as a result, we've got to watch the consolidations, which seem to change at a, at a dizzying rate among the liners. And each liner has their preference uh, with tug providing in a very competitive environment. And so um, we're, on one hand, trying to watch the tea leaves and, on the other, reacting to changes that happen in the lightning uh, pace in today's world and, in in that way, adapt to uh, possibly fewer customers as well as fewer ships.
0: Andy, what's your perspective, your biggest challenge going forward?
1: Back in 2014, we went through some some issues in the port uh, where we are really undergoing a a lot of slowdowns, if you you want to use that term. And we knew we had to uh, work better, harder, and smarter. So we developed a council on port performance, uh, which basically brought the port community together, put together a framework to discuss areas of common interest and find ways to make the port more efficient and develop more reliable levels of service uh, so that we'd be ready for larger volumes of cargo. Council met and and they came up with uh, 23 recommendations for action which um, some have been implemented. We're working on others. It's the whole industry working together, and that's the biggest challenge is getting everybody to agree that they need to work together to make the port work.
0: Andy, let me ask you, what is the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey doing to get big
1: ship ready? Well, that's a great question, and there are some great stories. I'll start with our, our deepening program, which has it's, it's cost $2.3 billion uh, between the Army Corps and the Port Authority to bring our uh, channels to 50 feet, and uh, we just celebrated the completion of that back in uh, early September. It's a milestone for us, a lot of hard work, and a lot of careers went into to making this happen. So as far as big ship ready, uh, water-wise, we're, we're all set. The project that we're, we're working on now and we plan on completing by the, the end of 2017 is raising the Bayonne Bridge. And that's a $1.3 billion project that's being funded by the Port Authority. And that'll allow super post-Panamax container ships to uh, access our, our terminals in, in Newark and Elizabeth. Uh, right now, the only terminal that can accommodate those vessels is the global terminal over in Je- Jersey City and Bayonne. On top of that, we've we've also invested about $1.5 billion in replacing the, the Gothels Bridge, which is a project that's ongoing. And that helps with access to a uh, global terminal over in Staten Island, New York. Uh, in addition to that, we've been widening and realigning and updating all our port roadways. Uh, access to and from the port is critical. And, and important. So we've completed work on North Avenue, McLester Street. We've done the first half of our Port Street Improvement Program, and we'll be starting the second phase of that in the, the spring of next year. So um, all these projects come together, and, and we're able to, to move the freight via rail and, and water. And, and more importantly, we've worked hard on our intermodal facilities. And I would say, uh, probably. Late this year or early next year, construction will start on the, the fourth uh, ICTF for the port, which will support the global terminal over in Port Jersey, which is also another critical thing that, that we need over there.
0: I'm curious why, you, uh, why you're raising the roadway on the Bayonne Bridge instead of simply replacing it as you're doing with the Gothels Bridge.
1: Well, after a lot of, a lot of study, Uh, It was determined that the project could be uh, progressed a lot quicker by using the existing infrastructure. And, you know, the Bayonne Bridge is is, uh, quite a historic structure. So it was felt that if we could do it this way, it worked out to be a little less expensive. And it did save us a lot of time, which uh, with the the, the opening of the Panama Canal and the coming of larger ships helped us uh, get in place quicker.
0: So your long-range plan extends to what year now?
1: In order to help us uh, with our long-range plan, we're actually kicking off a master plan. As I mentioned, we've done a lot of work, but we know that only buys us so much time. So uh, we're, we're actually in the process of kicking a, a master plan off for the port to plan out probably 25 to 30 years.
0: I'm trying to get a sense of what you think the Port Authority is going to look like in 25 to 30 years. How much bigger are we talking about? There's only so much space that you have to expand. So it's going to – the improvements are going to have to take place within the borders of the port or with the port itself – grow physically larger in that time?
1: I think there's still room for enhancing the, what the port can handle and accommodate. There's ways of doing that uh, by, by changing ways of operation and changing uh, the type of equipment that terminals use. We're, we're kind of hoping that as part of this, this whole planning study that we're, we're doing, uh, we'll be able to identify those and work with our terminal operators to talk about how to most efficiently use our critical infrastructure and, and, and valuable land.
0: So what is your vision of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey with regard to how you see it stacking up, the role it will play in global commerce, the role it will play vis-a-vis other U.S. and international ports? Where do you see it positioned in the years
1: ahead? We see ourselves as being the primary North American gateway.
0: Well, Andy Saporito, I want to thank you so much for telling us a little bit about not just East Coast ports generally, but the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey specifically. Captain Eric Weberg, I want to thank you for being with us and talking about some of the issues related to McAllister towing and the new generation of tugs. Thanks, both of you, for being with us today.
2: Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. <laughs>
0: That was my conversation with Andy Saporito of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey and Eric Weberg of McAllister Towing, talking about how East Coast ports plan to handle the big new container ships. Our thanks to the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey for sponsoring this episode. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where you post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine.